I want to go back to our backbone today. We kind of departed because I wanted to show you some things from the life of Christ that illustrate his character. I wanted you to see Jesus and children. If you don't see Jesus and children, you've missed something about him. I wanted you to see your connection to Christ. Last week, I poured out my heart and soul because I believe with all my soul that he needed you in his moment of darkness. Just like you need him in your moment of darkness. That ties us together in an inseparable connection. Um, Like mother and child. Mother and child will never ever be fully severed. Mom needs child, child needs mom. It's a beautiful connection. But I wanna go back to our backbone. We started this class in the lectures on faith. Joseph Smith says in the lectures on faith, three things are necessary that we have life and salvation, that we have faith that leads to life and salvation. Number one, the idea that he actually exists. That's what we typically think of faith, the idea he exists. But then he added a second one, a correct understanding of his character, his attributes, and his perfections. I wanna see if you remember his character. Joseph lists six. Six aspects of the character of God. Do you remember them? Uh, no looking, just remembering. I know, you, I know you took great notes. I want them to be written in your heart. I want you to say, I know the character of God as Joseph taught in the lecture, that he is greater than all things. No one will move him out of his place, including my problems. He is greater than death. He is greater than sin. He is greater than fear. He is greater than all things. Um, Number two, you can get them out of order. It's okay. Just throw them out at me. He is merciful. That his character is he is quick to forgive. God is of a forgiving disposition. It is his nature to forgive. If he errs, and I'm Air quotes, if he errs, he errs on which side? Justice or mercy? Now, luckily, we know he doesn't err, but we just need to understand that's his nature because most of us think he errs on which side? And that's wrong. That is a misunderstanding of his character. His nature is to be forgiving. Then we talked about doesn't change, doesn't lie, doesn't have favorites. God does not have favorites. That's going to come up again today. And the reason I want to go back to them is I've held this last one for a while. What was the defining final sixth character of God? Love. Everything he does is motivated by what? love. And the reality is, if you're going to follow Christ, what defines your life? Love. The base, the backbone, the root is love. But unfortunately, I, I'll admit, I hate the English language. I wish, I can't wait to speak Adamic. I can't wait to go back to the language we spoke in heaven, because I guarantee it's better than English. English has one word that means so many things, and some of them don't deserve to be known by the word. That word love, oh, don't love that. The word love. If you know Greek, you know that Greek, Greek has at least four words that we use one word to describe. But that word love, God is love, Christ is love. It's the backbone of who he is, And yet what we need to do is pull it apart. I want to pull that word apart. I have searched a lifetime to find a source that I could point to and say, oh my goodness, that's it. That's love pulled apart. All my life I searched. I want to find a legitimate source that I can point to and say, I believe that is love pulled apart. 
1985, it was given, 1995, it was given to me. Something came out in 1995 that changed my whole world. You know it as the Proclamation on the Family. Turn with me to the Proclamation on the Family. Now, yes, it's actually the family, a proclamation to the world. So however you refer to it, I'm going to lovingly refer to it as the proclamation on the family. Um, you can find it in many places. I'm going to pull up. You know what? Let's, pull, let's maybe just pull it up together. Yep. Okay, just, just to let you know where my soul is. Um, this is one of my versions. I have about 20 versions based on what I'm looking at, and I just, I just digest this thing. This is the orange, this is the Declaration's Warnings and Council version. <clears throat> what I love, you've all done group work before, right? I know you've all done group work, and I know you all hate it, right? Tell me why you hate group work. Abraham, someday I'm going, to be, I'm going to pick you first. We're going to be in the playground, and we're going to be a playground pick, and I'm going to say, Abraham is on my team. Why do you hate group work? What's the hardest thing about getting a group work? Having so many different personalities and have to type one phrase. Every time, I mean, you wordsmith forever, right? I'll never, I was so frustrated. It was two o'clock in the morning and we were still debating over one sentence. It's like, are you kidding me? Why can't you just say it the way I want it said? But getting everyone to agree. So let me ask you this question. 15 prophets, seers, and revelators. 15 very brilliant men, but very different perspectives are going to finish this sentence. Successful marriages and families are established and maintained on nine principles. Fifteen people are going to come together and come up with a list. Can you imagine that debate? Can you fathom how long it took to finish this sentence? Why nine? Why not ten? Why not eight? What was not included? Why were these nine included? I can't imagine the debate that went into successful families are built on nine principles. So to me, these nine are very significant. Now, the thing that amazed me when they first came out, I noticed a pair of two, a pair of two, a trilogy of three, and then a pair of two. I noticed a brilliant pattern of how they were put together. They were put together in sister sets. The very first concept is successful marriages and families will never, marriages and families will never be successful unless God is part of it. Therefore, what are the first two? Faith and prayer. A marriage and a family will succeed to the degree that God becomes part of that marriage and part of that family. And so the very first two say, make God part of it. And that requires faith and prayer. Now, the other thing I noticed is when you put people close together, the closer human beings get together, what happens? I know my wife better than any human being on this planet, including her parents. I love that woman more than any human being on this planet. But what comes with that? I could hurt her more than anyone else on this planet. I could cause her more pain than all of the rest of the humans combined. 
That's what happens with that intimacy, right? With that level of connection. Knowing that, where did they go next? So this is God, faith and prayer. What's the next set? I love that this comes next. I love that successful families and marriages will never succeed unless there's a whole lot of repentance and a whole lot of let it go. You apologize and let the rest go. The reality is of all the human beings, who should I be the quickest to forgive? The ones closest to me. And yet, which ones are the hardest to forgive? The ones closest to me. I love that they put that set next. I love that. The only way you're going to be successful if there's a whole lot of I'm sorry's and a whole lot of it's okay, I let it go. I'm not going to bring it up again. Repentance and forgiveness. The humanness of the relationship. Okay, let's skip the trilogy. Let's get to the last set. Oh, how grateful I am that they said the last sister set that makes family successful is work and play. You got to have fun together. You got to laugh and you got to play, but you also need to work. Now, are there some relationships that err on the side of work? They're too much work and not enough play. Yes. Are there some relationships that's err on the side of play and they need to work harder? Yes. I love that balance. I love that sister set. So I, God needs to be part of it. We're going to bump into each other. We're going to love each other and we're going to hurt each other. So there needs to be forgiveness and repentance. We've got to play and we've got to work hard. Now, set those aside and what are we left with? A trilogy. And for the first, knowing how much they must have debated this list, I finally, for the first time in my life, had what I believed was love pulled apart. I think the inspiration of this document is beyond description. And what I heard Heavenly Father say to me is love is a triangle of three pieces and they are respect, love and compassion. Respect, love and compassion. We've pulled two things out to talk about them separately and I think, in my opinion, I can't speak for the church, but my opinion is this triangle is what we call charity. So what is the defining character of Christ? Charity, which includes respect, love, and compassion. I feel like we've talked about compassion. We'll only briefly touch that tonight. But I want to talk about charity. Let's talk about the triangle as one for a moment, and then we'll break them down into individual. No, 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 no. We got to do the opposite. We got to do them individually in order to get more out of the, tr the triangle. So let's talk about respect. Of all the words, of all the words to include in a list of what makes marriage and family successful, why would they settle on respect? And what is respect in terms of charity? Allow, Abraham? Isn't respect like the trust, trusting someone to have like a capability, like, like when you respect a professional, you believe they have the ability to do their professional, you know, craft. Um, and so when you respect like an individual, you know, you respect them emotionally, intellectually, you trust that they have a thing. So isn't respect kind of like faith? 
Very much so. Okay. Very uh, much so. That was my thought. I love it. I love it. Okay. Let me let me give you my my best attempt. If this is not someone someone else will outdo me, that's no question. But let me give you my best attempt to explain what I believe gospel and charity respect is. And normally, I don't ever carry dollar bills. I bet you no one does. Anyone in the room have a dollar bill? You have one. Hannah has one. You don't need to get it out. But I wish I did, because imagine I had a dollar bill. Now, what makes the dollar bill valuable? The paper it's printed on is not worth a dollar. The ink used is not worth a dollar. That piece of paper in and of itself is not worth a dollar. But I treat that piece of paper different than other pieces of paper because what gives it its value? Why is a dollar bill worth a dollar? I can exchange rocks. Uh, you and I can exchange rocks. Why is the dollar bill worth a dollar? It's not worth, the paper's not worth a dollar. The ink's not worth a dollar. So why is that piece of paper worth a dollar? Because we accept it. I place, and we all as a community, place on that dollar bill a set of value. We accept its value. We simply accept it as having value. And that's what makes it valuable. And because it has value, we treat it differently. Now, what if we were to add, what if I were to add two more zeros to that piece of paper? Like with a pencil or? No, real. Oh. In real life, what if there were two more zeros on that piece of paper? Now what? Do you treat that second piece of paper the same as the first? Why not? It's still a piece of paper with ink. That's all it is. It's no different than the other piece of paper in its makeup. So why do I treat the second piece of paper differently than the first piece? Because I place on the second piece of paper greater value. I accept that this piece of paper is more valuable than this piece of paper. Therefore, I treat this one differently. So let's suppose there are six zeros on that piece of paper. A very real million dollar bill. What do you do with that piece of paper? How would you treat that piece of paper? The way, the way Hannah is treating her single dollar bill? Probably not. Why not? It's still, true or false, it's still a piece of paper with ink on it. In terms of its makeup, it's no different than the one. So why would you treat that piece of paper differently? You place a lot more value on it. In other words, you respect it. You respect the value that has been placed on that object. And with increasing value, you treat it differently. When I was a kid, my dad imposed what I realize now was one of the most brilliant rules I've ever been taught. I hated it at the time, but it was a family rule. The rule in our family was you have to treat everyone's possessions the way they treat them. And I realized he was teaching me respect. It is a matter of respect. If I value something to this level, then my value placed on that, if you respect me, then what do you place on that same object? The same value. So the, the root of this question is, tell me the value that God has placed on every single one of us. God is no respecter of persons. But that's intended to be, he doesn't, yeah, it so doesn't mean he doesn't have respect for each individual. Yeah, yeah. It means he doesn't have Very. more 
than someone else. Which means if he doesn't have more, that means everyone else is either way down here or way up here, right? He couldn't have more respect for even the lowliest of us. What value does God place on my spouse? How valuable is she to him? Go ahead and answer as best you can. Infinite value is her life, is her value worth the life of Jesus, his perfect son. I love, there's three statements that I love in terms of understanding what the value that God places on human beings. Let me, let me just give you the three statements. Turn to Doctrine and Covenants section 18. I think you know this one. The worth of souls is great in the sight of God. But what's the statement he gives to make that connection? How valuable is a soul? So section 18, verse 10, remember the soul, remember the worth of soul is great in the sight of God. And then he says, what next? So was, is, is a soul, is a soul worth the death of the Savior? Was one soul worth his dying, his pain, his agony? Was his death worth it if it saved just one soul? Daisy, what's your answer? Anyone want to disagree? According to God, it was worth it. So a soul is worth the death of the Savior. Would you agree? Number two, verse 15 and 16. Let's mainly read verse 15. Read it in terms of how valuable is a soul. Who wants to read 15? Jill? And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this soul, and bring said, if you want to me, how great shall be your joy in the kingdom of my Is it worth it? Is one soul worth an entire lifetime of labor? Absolutely. Yes. So one soul is worth the life of the Savior. One soul is worth an entire lifetime of labor. Now one more, Matthew chapter 16, New Testament. Go to the New Testament, Matthew 16. He says this numerous times. Let's just pull this one. Twenty-six. Who wants to read Matthew sixteen twenty-six? This is kind of said in the negative, so turn it around and make it positive. Anyone want to read it? Ryan? For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own Okay, pause right there. In other words, that's a bad exchange, right? So what is a soul worth? More than the whole world. Now, that is a commentary on how God sees each of us. Therefore, if I respect my wife, tell me what that means. If I respect my wife, then what do I see? Our soul is worth more than the world. More than the whole world. And if I see that value in her, how would I treat her? Would you say that we're pretty good at treating each other that way as a human race? No. We are not, which means what? We lack respect. And the only way a family is successful is if I see in my wife the value that God sees in her. When I see that level of value and treat her that way, I respect her. 
And I would plead with every one of you, do not marry anyone who does not respect you, who does not see in you incredible value. I should treat my wife, compared to the million-dollar bill and my wife, who should I treat better? That is respect. I see who you are. Now, pause on that because I want to come back to that, but I want to pause on that and let's talk about compassion. Compassion. The only way I think we can understand compassion is to show you compassion. And who of all people has compassion? Now, way back in an earlier class, let me take you back to what we did several weeks ago. Turn with me to Alma chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Do you remember this conversation? Jesus' atonement is infinite. Book of Mormon says that repeatedly. The, inf- the, the, the atonement has to be infinite, which means every aspect of the atonement is infinite. So every aspect of his suffering was infinite. So let's identify a couple aspects of his suffering. What's the first one in verse 11? What did Jesus suffer at an infinite level? Pain is the first one right? So let's start with that one. How many different types of pain has Jesus suffered? An infinite number of pain. Has he given birth in essence? Has he had every single possible human pain? Does anyone have any pain that he isn't infinitely familiar with? Now, for example, my wife gave birth twice without epidural. She gave birth 10 times, twice without an epidural. No epidural, she's given birth naturally. Now, that pain lasted for about 30 minutes. If infinite is not only this direction, but this direction, does Jesus know the exact pain my wife was going through in that moment? So that's this one of the pains, right? But my wife was in that pain for 30 minutes. How long was he in that pain? For an eternity. How well does he know that pain? Now, you do that with every single human pain. Not only did he suffer an infinite variety of humanness, but each one of them was suffered for how long? Otherwise, that is not an infinite atonement. That's a finite atonement, and his atonement was infinite. How about affliction? How depressed has Jesus been? How many varieties of depression does he know? Is there a variety of depression he doesn't know? Now, each one of those, how long did he suffer that variety of depression? Does he know it? Does he understand it well? Every affliction, every human experience, he knows. If I can be bold and just be blunt, has Jesus been gay? How long was he gay? Does he know that? Every human condition. Has he been autistic? There's a whole spectrum of autism, right? Does he know each one of them? And how long did he spend in that autistic state? An eternity. I have a neighbor. I don't know the name of the disease, but her mental state is 100% normal. She's 16. Her mental state is 100% normal and her body does not function. She is confined to a wheelchair. She can't move. They finally have a device where she looks, it measures where she's looking and based on the words she looks at, it forms sentences, that's how she communicates. Her brain is 100% normal. How frustrating would that be for you? 
Now, does Jesus know that condition? She's been in it for 16 years. How long was he in it? An eternity. Now, look at the end of verse 12. What did that give Christ? What ability did knowing every human condition give Christ? Compassion. Compassion is, I have felt what you are feeling. I know what you are going through. How's, how's that differently than sympathy? What's sympathy? Feeling bad. I can see you're in pain. I feel bad that you're in pain. It's me standing up on top of the light, looking down into the cave saying, oh, I'm sorry you're down there. I sympathize that you're down in there. Empathy or compassion is I get down in the cave and I know what you're going through. So who is the only person who is completely compassionate? Christ. But what is it that makes relationships work? Compassion. I am doing what I can do to feel what you feel. Let me give you an example. I'm a dad. I have four daughters. Typically, a 15-year-old daughter comes home depressed because the boy she likes doesn't like her. And dad says what? Dad says, Right? I'm thrilled that he doesn't like you. Is that compassion? Why not? Because she's not thrilled. This is not a time for me to say, yay, I love that the boy doesn't like you back. This is a time for me to say, I feel what you are feeling. And you are devastated. And so allow me to just be devastated with you. Remember when Lazarus is going to, he's going to heal Lazarus. He's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead and Martha and Mary are crying. What does Jesus do? So he pat him on the head, ah, suck it up. I'm going to go raise him from the dead. Stop crying. What does he do, Ivy? He just, because they're sad. And so he just weeps with them. I feel what you are feeling. So if I have a daughter who suffers with depression, I need to be compassionate. And the last thing I do is say what? What's the last thing a compassionate father would say? Yeah. Suck it up. Get out of bed. You're faking. What would a compassionate father say? Help me feel what you feel. Tell me what you're feeling so I can share that and feel what you feel. Now, knowing what you're feeling, how do I act? Do you see how charity has to include that level of compassion? Compassion is I feel what you're feeling. So maybe to simplify, I see who you really are. And I'm going to treat you based on that value. And compassion is I feel. So let's do love. Taking respect and compassion out of love, what are we left with? What is love? Allow me to just be bold. I hope I don't harm anyone's feelings, but love is not a feeling. You do not feel love. You do not feel love. Allow me to defend my position. If you feel love, then what's the problem? If love is a feeling, I have a problem. Anyone see the problem? Jill? Okay, and that's where I want to go. But what's the problem if love is a feeling? Temporary. No feeling lasts forever. 
are there moments I don't have that feeling for my wife? Better question. I'll say it this way. Are there moments where my wife doesn't have that feeling for me? Yes. Can she love me even when she doesn't feel that for me? So that's the problem. If love is a feeling, then it's only, it's only present if I have that present, that feeling with me. Do you think I ever give God a feeling to not fully think kindly of me? Yes. The answer is yes. In those moments where he's mad at me, can he still love me? Because love is not a feeling. Now, I love Jill's definition that love is a choice, uh, 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 an action. I 100% agree, but I'm going to use a different word to define it. Love is a choice. I choose to be committed to you. I can make that choice even when the feeling's gone, right? Love is a choice. Well, here's my definition, or here's my defense. And you know how I feel about C.S. Lewis, right? So you know it's going to be C.S. Lewis. Here is C.S. Lewis. Come on. Being in love is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. There are many things below it, but there are also things above it. You cannot make it a basis for a whole life. It is a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. And no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go. In fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending, quote, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean, quote, they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day that before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever could be true. Who would and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendship? But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in this second sense, love as distinct from being in love is not merely a feeling. And I love that he used the word merely. Are there feelings associated with love? Of course there are. Does God have feelings towards me? Tender-hearted feelings towards his child? Of course. But it is not merely a feeling. Ready? It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit reinforced by the grace which both ask and receive from God. Love is a choice. I choose to be committed to you. And I wake up tomorrow and I choose that again. And even when I don't have the feeling, I still choose to be just as committed to you. I'm not going away. I choose to be committed to you. That's love. It is a determination. It is a habit. It is a choice. I choose. And no one in this world can prevent me from choosing for myself. I choose to love you. Even when the feelings are gone. So he goes on to say, 
they can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other. True or false? Because my love is not conditioned on my current feelings for you. In fact, they can retain this love even when each would easily, if they allowed themselves, be in love with someone else. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. People get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever, right? Tell me that statement is 100% true. People think that if you've married the right person, you will always be in love. But what inevitably is gonna happen? That feeling will fade. And what will people conclude? Exactly what he says. As a result, when they find they are not in love, they think this proves they've made a mistake and they are entitled to a change. Tell me that's not happening all around us. People are falling out of love and then choosing what? I choose not to love you anymore. But do not blame it on the feeling. That was a choice. Love is a choice. Let me start that over again. As a result, now people get from books the idea that if you've married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves they've made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. In this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. The thrill you feel on first seeing some delightful place dies away when you really go live there. Now, does this mean it, wouldn't be, it, it would be better not to live in the beautiful place? Of course not, by no means. If you go through with it, the dying away of the first thrill will be compensated for by a quieter and more lasting kind of happiness. What is more, the very people who are ready to submit to the loss of the thrill and settle down to the longer lasting happiness are then most likely to meet new thrills in some quite different direction. This is, I think, one little part of what Christ meant by saying that a thing will not really live unless it first dies. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go, let it die. Go on through that period of death into that quieter happiness that follows and you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and to prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer, and you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. How many of you know a bored, disillusioned old man or an old woman who was misfooled by this? It is because so few people understand this that you find many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth at the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all around them. It is much better fun to learn to swim than to go on endlessly and hopelessly trying to get back the feeling you had when you first went paddling as a small boy. Jill? I just had a thought of like, something wonderful about our nature as humans is that we are changeable beings. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize that once you grow up, then you've learned all the lessons you need to learn and you don't need to learn anything else. And that's what you think, especially as a child, like, oh, they know everything. No, they don't. And you especially feel that like as a young adult, like you will never know everything and you should never settle for thinking you know everything or that you've grown past the point of change and you can always change. And the thing about being in a relationship with someone is like, letting them change, letting yourself change, and growing to be in love with that person over and over again as you both change throughout your life. So you've got the root, the commitment. I choose you, you choose me, and as things change, we can fall in and out of love with each other all over again. I fell madly in love with 20-year-old Jennifer Dunford. 
But now I am falling all over in love with her. I'm falling in love with Grandma Dunford. But what's the root of all of this? I choose her. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and choose her again. And tomorrow night, I'm going to choose her again. And every day I wake up and say, I choose her. You can choose someone even in those moments where you don't like them or are mad at them. I still choose you. Rachel. Um, this is like really interesting because um, I'm studying psychology and right now, and I am like currently taking a class on marriage and like relationships. And so it's like really interesting that like we did went over of how like a lot of people do believe that, you know, loving at love at first sight, you know, is should be the main thing. And that if you find the right person, then you'll be happy forever when that's not the case. Um, like you may be happy for a little bit. But like, like the quote is saying, and like, um, and like you were saying, like people change throughout their lives, and you know, there's gonna be times where you're gonna have like arguments, or you know, like something's gonna happen, and that's gonna, like, in a way, test your love for each other. Yeah. But if you're able to overcome that, then you know, it'll be fine. And sometimes that sadly doesn't happen. You know, sometimes, you know. So, yeah, yep. and, um, and it's also like really interesting because like another huge aspect of relationships is communication. Communication is big, should be a big important thing because, you know, you can't expect, you know, your partner or whoever you're with, you know, to know exactly how you're feeling or to think exactly how, we, how you are, you know, so communication is also important too, you know, yeah. like just. Yeah. And again, do you see written in all of these that element of communication, respect? I'm in the conversation because I see who you are. I'm listening because I want to feel what you feel. And this is my choice. I choose to be here with you right now. You see that triangle? It's such a beautiful triangle. Now, we'll continue next week, but I want to end with this thought. The one thing we have to understand is that Jesus respects me. That thought needs to get into your head. I don't know how to do it. I wish I had some magical power that would allow you to just accept the reality that Jesus respects you. He sees that infinite value. It was that life. It was his life that was given for that life. He sees you. He respects you. He feels what you feel. And he, I know this is an odd concept. Ready? I need you to believe this. Even though you have given him every reason to walk away, he chooses not to. He chooses. He willfully chooses. Every blessing he gives you isn't because he owes you a blessing. Every blessing he gives you is because why? He chooses to bless you. He sees your value, he feels what you're going through, and he willfully chooses to be at your side. It is an act of love, not an emotion because he's in a good mood or he feels positively about you. He chooses. That's love. Now, I want to come back next week and pick this up because if he chooses to love me, if charity is his love for me, what then is the greatest challenge of my life?
Let me say it this way. I'm going to draw this next week. But if this is Christ, and this is me, and this is His charity for me. Now, the reality is, here's everyone else. Does this match this? Or I should have said it this way. Does this match that? Let me put numbers on it, just to think about. Let's put this as 100. I know, just allow me to fix it. God's love for me is 100. And this is someone I love. And this is someone I hate. This is the person who has hurt me the very most. This number is pretty low. Would you agree? You all have one. Every one of us has someone and that number is low. And you can make a pretty strong case as to why that number should be low. But what is this number? What is it? 100. Now here's the challenge. If I want to go where he is, what must this number become? How do we get there is the question I want to answer next week. If Jesus is love, and that means he is respect, compassion, and choice, and then he commands us. If you want to be my disciples, what was the, what was the defining commandment he gave? By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. If you have love like I love, how do we get there? Would you ponder that question and come back next week ready to talk about that? I bear you my testimony that Jesus loves you. He respects you. He feels and has full compassion for everything you've ever felt. And in spite of all your weaknesses, he chooses to stay right next to you. Of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.